We go about our daily lives, doing what we do, dealing with the tasks of the day, completely unaware of some of the most incredible things that are going on in all corners of our world. Personally, I'm not always social media's biggest fan, but I do see the massive upside of it when it lets us see the amazing things that we would otherwise probably never see. The work of our guest on this episode is a perfect example of this. Through the videos they post on Instagram and YouTube, we get to see the amazing and humbling work that Nadia Drea and Ocean Conservation Namibia are doing to rescue literally hundreds of injured and entangled Cape fur seals. Family man, conservationist, lover of the great outdoors. On this episode, we share the very special story of how Nadia Drea is saving animals and giving something back to his beloved ocean. It just manifested itself from there. I just guess, uh, I just, I, I mean, being an animal lover, um, I just couldn't bear the feeling of seeing these animals knowing they're gonna die and not trying my absolute best to, to try and save them. I'm Jake Worley, and this is One of the Eight, bringing you the real life stories of real world people, the things they have achieved and the things that have inspired them. Hi everyone, in this episode on the One of the Eight podcast, we have the chance to hear from somebody who is dedicating their life to help those he has built such a close affinity with in our oceans. Today's guest has turned what started out as an opportunistic rescue into a non-profit organisation whose efforts have been seen all across the world. He continues to drive awareness of the issues he sees and it's our honour to have him talk with us today. So Nadia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jacob. Now... You are somebody that I believe has been into a family of con- conservationists. So could you tell us a little bit about your kind of family background and where the conservation heritage comes from? So um, if you're familiar with Namibia at all, um, our biggest park, like our natural, our national heritage is the Atosha National Park. Um, it's a huge, it's a, it's a really beautiful park. You can see all the animals. It's, it's a really... It's a it's it's a it's an amazing place and um, the 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 Serengeti of Namibia you could say. So my my parents were working in this park when I was born, um, and I spent my first few years there. From there, I we we moved to another uh, part of the country, also in the bush. Um, spent uh, a few more years there and moved to the coast when I was about seven years old. When I had to go to school, they didn't really want to send me to boarding school. And we moved to the coast, um, and I've just always grown up um, with my dad being called out all the time for dolphin rescues, uh, whales, strandings, um, things like this. Um, and just, I mean, we've grown up with 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 Attenborough in the house. We've we've had just always had this um, conservationists around us. Uh, my friends' parents were always conservationists, and I've just really grown up in this environment of uh, of a conservation mindset. So I guess it's just a progression of things and is that something your father did or does as a, as a full-time job or is it something that he did just kind of out of passion he did it out of passion he worked he worked in nature conservation um, initially and then he got into uh, into tourism um, he was a restauranteur by trade actually but he worked in conservation and then he went into to tourism and but um, the tourism was always focused on on nature. So we spent doing uh, marine cruises in the bay, the area we're living in. Um, and he was uh, spending a lot of time with dolphins, whales, uh, seals 
in particular. And I guess it just always just manifested um, like that. It, it, like, yeah, he's, he's, not, uh, he's, he's not a full-time conservationist, but just a very conservation, just come from a very conservation-minded uh, family. Okay, and I guess, I mean, personally, I, I don't know, I'll be honest, I don't know a great deal about Namibia. It's something I'd love to learn more about as we chat. Is the country kind of set up in a way that it kind of opens itself up to being kind of more outdoors and more kind of connected to, you know, the, the natural parts of life? Yeah, ab absolutely. So, so tourism is really big in Namibia. It's it's our it's our uh, it's our biggest uh, national earner, you could say. And uh, look, it, it's a massive area. It's about five times the size of the UK, with a population of two million people. So there, there's nobody here. I mean, you drive for four or five hours on on on, on main roads, and you'll pass ten cars. It, it's crazy. So you. Wow. You come on holiday in Namibia, it's completely for the outdoor experience. You, you're in the bush the whole time. You've got these animals around you. Like in the coast where I live, on the skeleton coast, we've got some of the biggest dunes in the world plunging right into the ocean. It's a really, truly unique landscape. It's, uh, it's a special place. I, I feel very <laughs> patriotic about it, so I'm probably overselling it a bit, but it, it is really a unique uh, destination. Wow. So I guess that the, the kind of the combination of your... Your, your father's activities and the country you're in, you've kind of really always, you've been involved with environmental projects your whole life. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just, it's by, I want to say by default. Yeah. Um, I, I studied, uh, I studied tourism uh, management after, after high school. I actually, I really wanted to study marine biology, but at that stage I was just told there's no, I went to Swiss, to the ministries and, uh, and I was just told there's no real, future for marine biology in Namibia and I was probably dissuaded too easily so I studied tourism management I came back in Namibia and I've always been in tourism myself but um, I mean while while studying I did a uh, I got myself up to instructor level in in diving uh, scuba diving and I've just always been in the ocean and in nature I mean I've, I've really got a, an extreme passion for just being outdoors and in nature. So in terms of the work that you've been doing and, you know, getting closer to nature, you do work, as you mentioned, in diving, surfing and kayaking. Is that all kind of working and providing kind of tourist activities each year? Um, yeah, so we, like I said, I've always been in tourism, but for the last eight years or so, I've been, uh, my wife and I started a company doing kayaking tours at Pelican Point, um, where the big seal colony is. And this is my, my, my big passion. I love kayaking. I'm, I'm, I've always been, like I said, in, in the ocean surfing, and that's just been a, a, a hobby. And the diving, we don't really have much diving in Namibia, but the kayaking really, it just it gives me so much joy just being on the ocean every day. And uh, this is also where the whole seal rescue thing started its, its journey as well. Wow. So before we get onto some of the, kind of the seal rescue work that you do, which I'm itching to get to, um, something we touched on just before we started the recording was the fact that lockdown has actually, I guess, because tourism has reduced so significantly lately, that's given you a greater opportunity to kind of accelerate what you were already working on in the conservation side of things. Absolutely. So we, um, I mean, we, we're fully reliant on tourism. Uh, we've got the kayaking business and we also have a, a shop a tourist shop um so when tourism in march just came to literally a grinding halt um we we literally had nothing better to do than to focus on our uh, we we'd 
we'd set up our organization, Ocean Conservation Namibia, in January. And it's always been like a little bit of a sideline thing. Okay, let's just see where this goes, but also no real drive because we've just had so many other commitments. And then we were just suddenly faced with a situation where, okay, we've got nothing else to do now. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's push um, as hard as we can on, on Ocean Conservation Namibia. Wow. So as we're starting to kind of get to your most well-known work that's really come to the limelight in recent times is protecting Cape fur seals from entanglement of fishing lines, fishing nets. And that's how I first came across you because I saw a video shared, an incredible video of you saving one of these seals from a fishing line that it had around its neck. Um, but what I was interested to know is when did you kind of first encounter your first entangled seal? When, when did this journey all begin? Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was actually, um, I'm just, uh, I'm actually just quickly checking here. It was in July, 2013. Um, oh, wow. I actually just, I was checking the mail earlier. Um, we, uh, somebody sent me a photo earlier of, uh, of the sexual, of the, the first rescue. And, um, wow. So we were we were out in the kayaks. It's just after we started the kayaking company, and we were we were floating on the water, and the seal came swimming past, and he was just dragging a whole bunch of net around him, and we just saw this guy was in immense pain. He could barely swim. So myself and a colleague grabbed this net. We dragged the seal to the beach. Um, I've always I've, I always carry a knife on me, but we managed to, to cut him free, and it was just like wow, this is. We just we, we knew we just saved this animal's life and it was an awesome experience it was really <laughs> satisfying to to do and uh and suddenly from there we just became a little more conscious about the whole situation so we actually we we had no no idea even though we were working around the seals if you're not looking for entanglements they're really difficult to spot actually so we just became a bit more mindful to the situation and the whole thing just sort of developed uh, from there so i mean you know, people obviously, you know, in, in your life, the, the chances that you'll see an animal, whether that be, you know, a bird or a fox or a cat or something that's, you know, been affected at the side of the street and you might help them and hopefully you can help in some way and then you'll probably go about the rest of your day. But what is it with you from that first rescue that gave you such a strong affinity that it's kind of, you know, it's kind of dictated the large parts of your life ever since? Man, I just, it's weird, like, like I said earlier to you, I mean, I've just, I've spent so much time in the ocean, I, I owe so much to the ocean. Um, it's my, my playground, my, my work, my source of income, my, it gives me peace. It's, so I just, I feel like a, a custodian, I, I, I owe it, I, I, I need to, to pay back. And we saw these animals in need and this is my chance to to <laughs> repay my debt in a little way, and right, it just manifested itself from there. I just guess uh, I just I, I mean, being an animal lover, um, I just couldn't bear the, the feeling of seeing these animals, knowing they're going to die, and not trying my absolute best to to try and save them. So, how many how many seals are there in Namibian waters and kind of in the area where most of your work takes place? So in Namibia, we have around 1.3 million seals in total. They're by no means a threatened species, which is also why they, they get very little uh, 
concern from from government levels and it's not a threatened species it's not endangered in any way so it's not a priority species in any way unfortunately but the the area where i'm working pelican point uh, colony is usually around 60,000 seals um anything up to about 80,000 in in breeding season wow i mean that that is a lot and to be honest i guess a lot of people you probably have no idea that there are that many in this part of the world no it's uh, no no it, it's uh and also, I mean, most of 70% of Namibia's coastline is MPA, which is uh, marine protected area. So no people, general public don't have access to these areas at all. And most of the colonies are actually in the, in the marine protected areas. So you don't, you would never know it unless you, unless you know, unless you read up and actually research it, you wouldn't know how many seals we actually have in this country. Wow. So unfortunately, as beautiful and as, and as amazing as it is, the very nature of your work probably means that the, the rate of incidents in which you need to help rescue one of these animals is probably quite high. What kind of, how many have you rescued? Have you, have you got, do you keep a total and kind of how many do you save on yeah. average? So for the last, um, for the last three years or so, since we've really sort of ramped up things, um, everything before that has been opportunistic. So it, it's, it's quite a, a rough estimate, but I want to say in total we're sitting in around 1,500 rescues uh, since we started that first one in 2013. Wow, we've done we've we're, done we've done 600 this year alone. It's a it's a, it's a bittersweet, isn't it? Right, because it, it's fantastic that you've been able to achieve that, but at the same time, it's a problem that it's needed for you to do that many. That's exactly what it is. Bittersweet is the word I always use to to describe it. It's uh, it's 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 so awesome to be able to do that, but at the same time, it just highlights how big this problem really is. Well, and I believe actually, when I was doing a little bit more research on you, I quickly connected that it was you attached to some news articles that I saw, actually very recently, to do with uh. An absolutely tragic mystery that seems to have unfolded in this part of the world where thousands of seal pups and some of their mums have kind of washed up dead. Um, and I believe you were you were one of the first to discover it. Yeah, it was all, um, I mean, we're out there every day. We, we are not scientists ourselves, but we are working alongside a lot of scientists, feeding back data and that. And um, I just noticed we, we had a lot of... Uh, in quite a short span, a lot of dead pups on the beach. These pups were being born prematurely, um, aborted, the scientists say. And um, this is just a, a massive mystery. Uh, and we and I reported it, and we, um, we again, we're putting everything on our social medias, and it just blew up overnight. I mean, I had a, <laughs> I had a live interview on BBC uh, World News. I was in the World Service Radio. It was, it just, it took off completely. So. Yeah, this uh, the story just um, went really big. It got a lot of uh, international coverage, but um, it was, I mean, it was a serious situation. We're sitting with probably around 10,000, just in our colony alone, 10,000 prematurely born pups, which is a very significant portion of the of the upcoming pup yield. So, I mean, while, while you said you're you're not necessarily a scientist, are you playing, I guess, kind of an established role in in trying to figure out what's going on here? Well, that's the the cool thing is we're we're out there every day, so we can we 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 have the opportunity to get some really cool data. Um, so it's more about the entanglements, type of entanglements, uh, regularities, extent of the damage, things like this. So we we really we're documenting everything we're doing. But 
at the same time, I mean, my, my passion is just seals in general. So I'm just observing the colonies all the time, looking for any sort of changes. And uh, we've got an awesome network of, of scientists we, we work with all over the world that we're feeding information to all the time. And uh, these guys picked up on this and, um, and it just it, it took off from there. So has there been, I know they're saying that, you know, it's looking like there's been abortions, but is there any kind of indication as to what might have caused it? So it's a, it's a multifaceted um, cause right now that we're sort of looking at. Um, it's, uh, look, the, 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 the bottom line is the, the seals are starving. Um, and they're dying of starvation. The female seals have this mechanism where they will abort their own fetuses if they feel they don't have enough fat reserves for the upcoming pup because they're all nursing pups at the same time. So in order to save themselves and their current pups, they will abort their fetuses. And we see this every year. Um, we see these dead pups on the beach, and it's, it's, it's terrible to see, but it happens. We get a couple of hundred of them in, in the colony every year, and it, it's just we accept it as a, a way of life. But it just became more and more, and this wasn't stopping. That's when all the alarm bells went off. And um, we just noticed that suddenly the, 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 the females that were on the beach and the existing pups were really, really thin. So it was definitely down to a lack of food. But at the same time, we could not rule out the presence of toxins or um, disease in the animals. So that, so we went on this massive mission. We, we sampled hundreds of, of dead pups, um, getting uh, biopsy samples, getting them sent off to labs, um, running all kinds of tests and things. And I mean, we're still waiting for a lot. It's a very difficult thing when you're testing for something, you don't know what you're actually testing for. So the, the most likely scenario is that it was starvation but uh, again, we couldn't we couldn't rule out these other factors either. Um, and just back to the whole starvation thing. So looking deeper into this, we've we've had big die-offs before. In 1994, we lost nearly a third of all our seals in Namibia. Wow. Um, we had, we, and the thing is that we had very similar climatic conditions that year. In in we're in a strong what, what's called a La Nina cycle at the moment, which which has adverse effect on the oceans changing surface temperatures and currents and things. So it's not that people have to say, ah, oh, it's being overfished and it's, it's uh, blaming the fishermen, but it, it's not that. It's just that different currents and different water temperatures have, have, have forced the fish to stay further away. It's, uh, right. it's that it's, the fish are there, they're just not in the right place. These, these mothers that need to feed have a limited range to feed in because they need to come back to their pups on the beach. And if the fish are too far away, they, they, there's just nothing they can do. And I think that is much more uh, the cause of this whole situation. So they, I guess, don't, um, like you said, because of the range, it's not possible for them to move to where the fish are. Yeah, they've got to see, we've got colonies spread all over Namibia and the northern colonies um, are all fine. They didn't experience this die off of pups at all. And but those they so if the fish are in the north of the country, the the seals around us, the ones that are dying, they've only got a range of maybe 250 kilometers because they need to get back to the beach within about four days to feed their their current pups. And if the fish are too far away, they just can't make it back in time. So they just they stay on the beach and starve. Well, wow, that's terrible. It is, but it's a it's a natural cycle that's actually been happening for long before human interference. And it's just, it's, it's also like a bit of like a natural 
population control. It, it, it ensures the survival of the fittest, the strongest. It's like a, a, a bit of a genetic cleanup kind of thing. Just, uh, it's terrible. It really, man, it's so heartbreaking being on the beach and seeing all these dead animals. But it's, uh, it, it, it is a natural cycle at the end of the day. And I mean, this is probably quite a morbid question, but you know, that, I mean, that many dead animals on land probably, you know, takes up a large surface area. What what happens with all of them? Do, do humans interfere and move them somewhere, or what, what happens? It's a, very, it's a very secluded beach. Basically, very few people come out there, and there are so many um, jackals, hyenas, uh, seagulls, and things feeding on them. So. Even now, um, I was out there this morning again, there's so little evidence of, of these probably 10,000 dead pups that were littering the beach uh, a month ago. Wow. I get, Unfortunately, I guess, like you say, it's part of the cycle of life. Absolutely, yeah, that, that, that is. So, I mean, you mentioned this, this project took you to the BBC and several other kind of global media coverage. Um, and that's kind of part of the growing recognition that you're getting for your work with these animals. And I think this has been consolidated by the nonprofit organization that you touched on earlier, Ocean Conservation Namibia. How did this whole thing go from being its first rescue to a nonprofit organization? So basically, um, like I said, for the last few years, for the first four or five years, the rescues are always just opportunistic. We were out on tour and um, just we were we were actively looking for, for seals that were, were in trouble, but I mean we were still we were at work, we weren't really it was just a it was completely a sideline thing, just trying to help out where we could. And then from about the beginning of last year, it just it became a bit more of a of an obsession for me to to actively find these seals. I just, I, I couldn't sleep at night thinking about these seals. So I'd go out more often and I started doing, just going out there on my own, not not, not for work, but actually looking for, for entangled seals. And just the more I looked for them, the more I found them, um, which just showed that this problem was getting bigger and bigger. And what we realized was that by doing these rescues, we, we're treating the symptom to the problem. We're not getting to the root cause. It's not. It's just going to keep on happening unless major things change. So yeah. we started this organization to basically try and institute change. We need to change policy. We need to have stricter law enforcement on the dumping of fishing waste primarily in order to, um, to, to institute some sort of change. So this is uh, how this whole thing was born. And look, the, the key focus right now is still on entanglements. That is the job at hand. But using all this data we're collecting and that we can, we're trying to look at ways to reduce the amount of waste ending up in the ocean because that is what's, what's causing this all. So, so how big is the team? How big is Ocean Conservation Namibia as, as an organization? <laughs> it's tiny. It's, it's my wife and I. And, uh, and then... Um, so I've recruited a couple of my, my guides who were normally kayaking with me. I mean, we, we've all been doing rescues together for years and um, we, they help me with the rescues now because there's not really much other work for them. Um, we had Antoine, uh, the French guy, he actually works for Sea Shepherd. He's a friend of mine and he came to visit for 10 days in March and he got, he got stuck here for the lockdown. So he ended up spending six months here and we, oh, wow. we just went, of us went out every single day. And that's why we have logged up so many seals this year. 
Um, but no, we we're a small team um, doing what we do. But like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a non-profit organization. And uh, we're just uh, yeah, trying to, to get the, we're doing all the social media ourselves. Like I said, we, we're, we're uh, spending the afternoons editing videos, answering comments, trying to, to get things sorted out uh, for, for the organization. Um, luckily, the businesses haven't been too demanding lately, and then on top of that, we have three kids as well that we're, we're trying to to uh, raise in a, in a correct wow. way too. So, how how are, how are the projects funded? So again, purely through crowdfunding through social media, it's amazing. the The response has been so overwhelming; it, it's it's phenomenal. We we I mean, obviously, um, not drawing a salary or anything for this, but. Our, our costs are covered. We we've got fundraisers running, um, uh, like go get funding um, fundraisers running just uh, for for basically to support the project to keep us out there every day. And um, we we post links to that on our on our YouTube videos, and we're we're really well supported. It's incredible. So what what does your what does your kind of average week look like, you know, pre kind of lockdown? How are you splitting work time and seal rescue time? I, uh, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I brought in another full-time guide so I didn't have to kayak so much. So I could actually spend more time doing the seals. I'm still sort of uh, running the kayaking side of things, but not actively on tour that much myself. I would... I like to be out there when the tours are out, and that was my excuse to get out there and then to spend the day behind binoculars looking for seals. Um, and then, yeah, so we, we normally, I mean, the, the seal work we normally do till about 11, 12 o'clock, try and get out there early, and we're out of there by 11, 12 o'clock because uh, as the day warms up, the seals all start to get warm on the beach, they head into the water. And um, by most days, it's sunny and warm by lunchtime. So, and in the afternoons, it's yeah, catching up on, on admin, rushing kids around to sports, gymnastics, school, music, whatever they've got to do. And then in the evening, uh, just trying to, we, we've got a lot, of, um, a lot of emphasis on family time in our house. We, we, uh, we just, um, yeah, I, I try to, to prioritize family as much as I can. And to the family, have they been, I guess, it would be almost natural if it has, have they been drawn into some of the rescuing? Oh, massively. My, my wife went out to me this morning and uh, helped me catch a big seal. Um, and whenever I can on weekends, my kids love to come along. My son is, is 10 now. He's, he's helped me with quite a few seals before. And my daughters, they're, um, they're nine and, and, and uh, eight, sorry, nine and seven, and they they like they my greatest they my, my mascots they're awesome they're my biggest fans so oh, they love being wow. out there. No, we do a lot of like sort of family family days out at the beach uh, rescuing seals. It's quite cool. I mean, what a way to spend family time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is quite unique, <laughs> definitely. Um, so, could you talk to us a little bit through kind of the actual process that you go through when? saving a seal kind of how do you first ever go about because i've seen the videos that you've posted and you know there are literally there are hundreds or thousands of them all together how do you first ever kind of identify one that needs help catch it and then save it yeah so if, if the video is a live feed it would be really really boring we spend <laughs> hours and hours just slowly driving around looking through binoculars so we there's 
there's lots of little patches of seals on about a eight kilometer stretch of beach. So we drive up, stop, climb out the car, climb on the roof, and we just scan the area looking for entangled seals. As soon as we see one, we then need to sort of strategize. We need to see, okay, are we going to run up like crazy and grab him? Is he close to the water? Um, is he, look, our, our emphasis is always to, to cause as little disturbance as possible. It doesn't always look that way on the videos, but we, we try and, so we, we need to see, often we'll try and crawl up as close as we can to get to the seal, especially if they're close to the water, because the, the natural, the seals are water animals. They're on land, they're right. out of their natural that they're scared so if you walk up to them they're going to run away and if you corner a seal if you block his exit to the water he's going to get aggressive so there's a lot of strategy involved we will then um, decide on the size of the seal if he's small enough to catch by hand or if we're going to use our, our specially built seal net and then we'll we'll get to work we'll start crawling in running walking sometimes if they're far away and we're worried we'll i'll hang on to the side of the car and one of the other guys will drive me in full speed and I'll jump off the moving car with the net and run up and, and grab the seal before it can reach the water. Wow. So, yeah, we'll run up, try and get the seal then by hand or by, by net. And then um, we've got some, we've got a sort of assortment of tools on our belts. The most common being this, it's, it's called a Leatherman Raptor. It's like a rescue tool. It's a very heavy duty utility scissor. Um, that that's, works really well, can cut through all kinds of things, and we uh, we then try and cut free the entanglement, and we'll assess the damage, and uh, we'll check. We'll uh, for for data collection, we'll we'll collect. We'll check the sex of the animal. We will, if it's a bad entanglement, we'll collect a fur sample because um, we're actually again working with scientists. Um, they're doing different. They can tell all kinds of things. Um, from the fur by, by doing by running tests so we'll grab a little fur sample and then let it go and uh, go for the next one wow yeah i mean it's i'm i've learned a lot there because like you say if you watch the videos it kind of looks like a it's maybe 10 seconds of identify 30 seconds of chaos and then it's free but clearly a lot more of your day goes into it than uh, your videos give credit for yeah, we spend five six hours out there and it's a it's a long a lot of sitting, waiting, a lot of frustration, a lot of seals. We will often see entangled seals that are just too close to the water um, that we can't get to. And sometimes we'll see seals that are just too big. I mean, we, we've tried some really big seals that are just out of our, our weight class. They're just literally too big to catch in our net. I mean, it's a whole different approach we need to try and employ to try and catch those. Uh, have you ever actually been attacked by one? Um, I've got a few stitches. <laughs> I've, um, not, look, it's never, it's never attack. It's, it's purely self-defense. The seal does yes. not like being restrained. He's protecting himself. He's, um, so I've been bitten in the back of my leg while working with another seal. There was another a seal, a small seal running from behind. Um, I think he was running with his head down. He didn't see me. And as, an in, as a reflex at the last second, he saw me and he just opened his mouth and basically bit the back of my leg. Oh, wow. um, I've been bitten, bitten, been bitten in my finger, and then earlier this year, um, you can check on, on YouTube, uh, uh, Rescue Gets Bitten, um, I got bitten on my, my forearm, um, quite a bad one, I had to rush off to hospital and, uh, and get a bunch of stitches, but again, that was just a seal, we, we'd, we'd caught one in the net, 
and we saw another one and I ran and I grabbed it. It was a little bit big. I didn't want to let it go. It was a bad entanglement. I thought, okay, I'm just going to try and get this thing by hand. I knew it was not, uh, I knew I was taking a chance, but I just didn't want to risk losing the seal. Um, so I grabbed him. I pinned him behind his head and he managed to roll out of it. And he came back at me like a, like a snake striking and he got me in my arm. Still wow. managed to, 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 to catch him again and cut him free before I let him go. And then got a very elaborate first aid kit in the car, did some like primary care on the beach and then rushed off to the hospital to get the wound flushed and got my hundredth tetanus shot and uh, <laughs> got it cleaned up with antibiotics and thing and I was good to go in a week again. Well, I mean, they probably don't feel great at the time, but they're... Um... If anything, they're, they're scars and accolades that prove the incredible work you're doing. <laughs> yeah, definite uh, tattoos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you said that you know when, when one of those attacked you, that you were able to you know you had to head off to hospital, and it kind of it made me think, you know, you're able to catch the catch the seals, hopefully cut the wire or the fishing line off them. And in one or two of the videos, I mean, some of the, the kind of the, the gouge and the depth at which these fishing lines have gone into the seals looks just horrific. Is there any kind of, uh, are you at a point where you have resources to kind of rehabilitate or is it just a case of you, you cut them free and then you've got to kind of hope that you've helped them get to the best kind of recovery they can? So again, I've been consulting with numerous like, specialized vets in the field about this and you look at um, wounds from seals that have been in fights with other seals seals that have been gouged by boat propellers or been bitten by by sharks that are much worse than any wounds that a line would inflict and these guys survive salt water is actually the best medicine for these animals it's very antibacterial antiseptic and it's actually the best thing is to not interfere too much and just let the salt water do its its magic. Huh? Wow. I've been sent medicines. I've got a, a bunch of medicines uh, lying here, but I've just on like I've consulted many people about this and everyone comes back with the same consensus. Just let nature do its work. Wow. Uh, that's incredible. Um, and I guess a, a kind of an obvious question, but one that I'm sure has probably got a complicated answer is, would would it help if you were able to work with the fishermen to try and stop them kind of allowing so much of their equipment to end up in the water? Sure. Um, so it's it's a I always say it, it's a very hard sell. The fishermen. So most of these seals, most of the entanglements, probably seventy percent of the entanglements we entanglements we're getting are the same type of fishing line. It's a hand line. It's a thick, one millimeter thick um, monofilament fishing line that's used as a hand line with a big lure. It's targeting a fish species called snook, which the local fishermen catch here off commercial boats. And the big problem is these guys are all subsistence fishermen and the seals account for a lot of stock loss for them. They have a huge problem with seals taking their fish off the lines while they're catching them. They do not like the seals. So it's a very hard sell. Right. The, the, what, I, what, what my aim is, however, is that um, when these guys are fishing, you, like, I mean, they, they'll go through a couple of these lines in a day. 
because they had their hand lines, they're just working them between their legs. They get knotted up. The lines are not expensive. So what they do is they'll just literally cut the knotted line off, toss it in the water, set up a new line, carry on fishing. And it's those lines that are chucked in the water that are the problem. So what we want to do is try and <laughs> initiative, set up an initiative, incentivize these guys to bring those lines back, whether it's by money, offering them money um, to, to, to buy these lines back from them or to try and enforce stricter restrictions on fishing boats that um, forcing these boats, like it's, it's a very difficult thing, but and we have to come to policy change, but an accountability system that boat leaves and they, all, the, all the line on, on board gets, gets weighed, for example, and say, okay, you guys have 200 kilograms of line on board. When you come back, we're going to weigh all your lines again. And every kilometer or every kilogram of line that's not accounted for is going to have a massive penalty that'll incentivize these guys to bring all their line back again. So it, it's more, we're going to have to come with it more from, from that angle. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like you say, it's coming up with ways that unfortunately have to work for both sides of the party, isn't it? Um, and you talked a little bit about policy change, how kind of cooperative are Namibia as a country and a government, are they, are they aware of the work you're doing and kind of open to change? They are. But again, like I said, seals are not a priority species in any way. They're, um, we have, we have 1.3 million seals in Namibia. They're not an endangered species. It's not a, um, it's not, it's, it's, look, it's a, um, my, my, my wife likes to say, conservation is a luxury in a place like Namibia. We have massive social problems. It's, a, it's still a, a very third world African country. People are starving on the streets. It's a, it's a, it's, it's very difficult to, to motivate people to, <laughs> to consider conservation when they, when they're wondering how to give their family the next meal. Right. So, um, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult, very difficult thing. The only way we can actually do this is in this, I'm, I'm backtracking again to bringing in proper scientific data, showing, giving proper facts, um, written by scientists about the effects of the lines and not just, um, for seals. I mean, there's so many other, there's whales, dolphins, turtles, there's all kinds of animals getting affected by this too. So you need to bring in the bigger picture and motivate this up with scientific fact. And that's why we're trying, that's why we're logging all our data and working with scientists. It's a long-term goal, but uh, hopefully with all these, uh, with the scientific data, we can institute some sort of change. So what can, what can everyday people, you know, I mean, me here in London right now, is there anything that I can do that, you know, either helps your cause or, you know, what kind of day-to-day behaviors could I implement that are going to help the problem in general? Um, to help, look, we're, we're looking at a much bigger problem of ocean pollution. It's not just specific to to Namibia. We're just seeing it firsthand here. But, I mean, you've got it everywhere. People just need to be conscious um, about waste and about just knowing about sustainability. Um, like I'm not going to criticize people for eating fish, but... You, you get different uh, levels of fish. Um, most, most fish are, you can, it's a quick Google search. You can see the, the, the sustainability of the fish you're eating. Eat locally sourced fish that are sustainably caught um, by a local fisherman, not by massive, massive uh, Russian super trawlers. Um, do, when you, if you go to the beach, just 
if you see if you see five pieces of rubbish, pick them up and take them home. And there's a lot of little things that can be done that'll all contribute to the bigger picture at the end of the day. Yes, I mean you know obviously we can't expect everyone to be committing as much of their life to helping these animals as you are. But like you say, we could all just take, you know, minor changes. I'm in the very lucky position that I can. A lot of people would love to help more, but they're just not in the position that they can do this. So I'm just in the lucky position that I can do this. But everyone can make, if they really sort of self-reflect, which can be difficult at times, just think what you can do. Every time you throw something away, just think what could potentially happen with that and then just be a little bit more conscious about your daily decisions yeah no 100 percent for sure um thank you so much for sharing this information and making us you know more aware of the problem you've got at hand and uh as you mentioned i know you were up this morning doing your best work and you've got a busy family life to try and take care of as well so i'll try not to keep you too much longer i'll give you one final question um we get each of our guests on our podcast to share with us something or someone that has inspired them throughout their life. Often it's uh, it can be family or often we find it's a film or a piece of music or a moment in their lives. So we'd like to know who or what has inspired you. Oh, um, so I did read that, that question earlier and I've been thinking about it. Um, my daughter... Um, Nina, she's she's nine years old now. She, when she was four, she was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, we we don't really have good oncology in Namibia. So she my, and my wife moved to South Africa to Cape Town for 15 months, really hectic treatment, 15 months of chemo, a lot of radiation, and uh, she's she's doing really well now. It's not a sad story by any means. Okay, great. But um, basically, through this whole situation we you just after an experience like that you you sort of you go through quite a uh, a mind shift <laughs> change um and we just basically realized that uh like our, our, our time here is, is short so we decided to to change our priority our priorities we had a much bigger company that we sold off and our emphasis was on, uh, on on family time and just doing what we can for others, whether it be human or animal. And this, through this, so so through this tragic situation, some really really positive uh, things came out of it. And we just uh, obviously very grateful to still have her with us and just um, what this whole situation has opened up to us. Wow, that's uh, it's really brave of you and uh, honest of you to share it. So thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, she's obviously a, a fighting seal herself and one that's obviously got a lot of that fighting spirit in it that she gets from you. And no doubt you guys will continue being, you know, incredible role models for her to look up to as she grows up. So uh, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing this story with us. And uh, it's been really eye-opening. Oh, cool. Only a pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing me to, to be part of your... Uh... Your incredible project um, i've been checking it out and i really like the work you're doing thanks so much there are almost eight billion people on our planet and nadia drea is one of the eight to discover more about nadia his non-profit organization ocean conservation namibia and the amazing work they do in rescuing seals go online at one of the eight.com everyone has a story to share everyone has something to give everyone can inspire one of the eight is a movement 
of real-world people from across the globe, sharing real-life stories, inspiring others, enriching lives, and giving something back. I am, you are, everyone is one of the eight. Now streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Join the movement at oneofthe8.com.